Okay, just talk a little bit. Okay. How's this? Talk, oh, that's, talk. that's the perfect. I can tell immediately what? that you know how to talk into a microphone. Oh, really? <laughs> because it took me it took me a while to learn it. It really did. Well, um, you get the, you have the close interpretation. You're either too close or too far away. So. Like most composers are just too far. Like they want to forget about it, and I right, like that right, they right, forget right. about it. Which means that means they're like talking openly and kind of right. forget they're on microphones, which is great. But then they're not on microphones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not on a microphone. Right. They like turn away. And sometimes they'll be moving around a yeah. little bit, you know, especially like nerdy, like fidgety composers. Yeah. I, like I start, around. I move, so you might have to bring me back to it. I'm a mover. Yeah. But I, used, I did a radio show for, I've done a couple of radio shows actually through my schooling. So maybe that helped just getting used to talking on air and having to be on the mic in the particular way. You kind of have a good radio voice. Oh, really? Too. I got to say, it's like, <laughs> cool. it's like, like mine is not good it's weird that i decided to do something like this right <laughs> because it's just it's just my voice it's very like neck and nose Mm-mm. type thing but yours is almost like like a radio dj like hey welcome to the wolf 101.5 something like that like, that could awesome. almost work yeah i would love to be on a radio station called the wolf <laughs> that would be yeah. that'd be really fun that's the kind of thing that only happened that's like the 50s though. yeah totally yeah. totally yeah. no i did um when I was an undergrad at Susquehanna University, I had a new music radio show on their station for a year or two, and then I was I did a the morning classical show at Princeton when I was there for I just for a summer. But it was so fun. you're better at this than me, probably. But like, what did you do on that show? I just DJed. I played music, and you know, with the when the undergrad when I was an undergrad, the show I did was a new music show, and it was a sort of promotional tool for the ensemble that I was running at the time, which was the Susquehanna University New Music Ensemble. And uh, so we used it to, to promote concerts. And then I just looked at it as general, um, you know, evangelism and just played music I liked and music that I thought would maybe upset people in a good way. And you know. What kind of stuff did you play? Oh, man. And did you upset people in a good way? Oh, there were, yeah. <laughs> there were some moments. I think I, you know, I played some Xenakis at one point that, you know, had some good reactions. It was great because the way the station was set up, it was sort of like where we are here where, there, you know, we're on these mics and then there's this big window overlooking you know, Tribeca. And it was like that in the student center, this big window looking at the hallway of the student center. So I could see people reacting to what I was playing as they walked past. Cause it was a speaker right outside in the hallway. Oh, so it, some people would, you know, it was really, it was great. So did you get people just like walking by and immediately like clutching their ears? Like, sometimes or sometimes they're like, give me the finger or give me a thumbs up. <laughs> I mean, it varied greatly depending on what I was playing. Who gave you the finger? I don't know. I'm sure it had. I'm sure, you know, playing Zanakis, somebody was just like, what is this? I hate this. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yes, we're doing it right. Something, oh something's God. good. So was that always your uh, like reaction that you tried to get out of people? Like either a thumbs up or the middle finger? Not I, like, meh. I don't know. I mean... Basically, and you know, the the main thing is I was just playing music that I liked, and that I wanted, to, that I was excited about, and I wanted other people to hear. Um, I would rather people have a reaction than no reaction, so that's better than no reaction. That's better than just walking past and ignoring it, you know. Okay, and how long did you do that? And did you get any feedback? Did you get any flack or trouble? Or it well, was just they, basically they canceled the show after a year. Oh, I think they, I think they did. The station didn't like it, so we didn't. We didn't keep doing it. How many listeners did you have? Oh, I don't know, like four. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, it was a college radio station that I don't think reached very far. I mean, it was a small college in central PA. So it was mostly, I actually think mostly where people heard it was walking past that window in the student <laughs> center. And I would listen when I would, I know when I would drive out there from my parents' place in New Jersey, 
there was a point where I would cross over this mountain and suddenly I could get it. And I would always tune in and see what was happening. And one of the most inspiring moments was this friend of mine who I actually don't think I knew. I didn't know him yet until I heard this show. He was a DJ at the station. His name is Matt Primack. And um, he was just playing suicide, span suicide, sort of like Lower East Side electro noise duo. From yeah, the yeah, 80s. yeah. And he just played just suicide for like two hours. It was like unbearable and amazing. You know, I was just like, we're going to be friends. And so I actually went to this big window at the radio station and, you know, and knocked on the window and he let me in. And I met him that day while he was like, you know, while something was playing while he was on air. And I was like, what, what is this? This is amazing. And, and I remember I think often, especially with Arrested Development now, bringing Europe's The Final Countdown back into, you know, public oh, consciousness. Oh, okay. yeah, the show. The yeah. show, yeah, yeah. 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 That was, a, I remember, a thing at that radio station where they had the LP up, almost like an emergency, like break this in case of emergency, that if Armageddon ever came, that's what you're to, you're to play the final countdown by Europe. Luckily, it never happened. Was that a good school? Like, for, bring me back to your, like, it was great actually, for me. Yeah. Sorry, your school experience or what, what's going on there? Yeah. So I was an undergrad at Susquehanna University, and um, I had a sort of weird, going back a little further, I, you know, I... I was always a creative kid and I was involved in theater and I was a drummer and I played in a fife and drum corps from the age of eight through like 18. And so I was always doing music. I played in rock bands. I was always putting on shows and just doing all this stuff that I in some ways still do, um, but in different forms. And then when I was 15, I went to see The Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton film. And somehow it's the music in that just sort of sparked this excitement in me about writing music. And I walked out of the theater, like, no joke, and just said, I'm going to be a composer. And that was sort of it. Um, but then I had to deal with the fact that I couldn't read music because I was a drummer. I had learned everything by ear. So I, I was musical, but notation was, like, totally foreign to me. And scales, harmony, didn't know anything about any of that. And this was late in the game, 15. 15, yeah. I mean, of course. You know, Too late I, to be a prodigy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of uh, a lot of people start notating music at that age if they're yeah. gonna, if he or she is going to be a composer. But... They've certainly been reading it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And then they have a certain intimacy with like a piece of paper. Yeah. But you know. No. So it was, 15, I mean, what I, happened? I sort of knew notation and I could write rhythmic stuff. So I, around that same time, I mean, once I got excited about it, I just started doing everything that I could, you know, anything I had access to, I started exploring. So I started writing, you know, drumline arrangements for my high school marching band because I was in the drumline. You know, anything where I was already making music, I added writing music to that world but how long did it take you to figure out the notation um like if you've never seen it before or if you've seen it I mean, and I had it's seen just it. gibberish to you then I mean, it's not that i couldn't read at all i was just not very proficient i mean i had sort of taken piano lessons i had gone through a school system that had a pretty decent music program so i had played in band and i but it was always drums i was you know i was always playing snare drum or bass drum in the my elementary school band was never reading even like glockenspiel parts or anything like that. It was always just rhythm. So rhythmic notation, I got. So that's why starting out with doing drumline stuff was really good because it was all just rhythms. And so I could kind of work on it and kind of practice doing that stuff. But then it was like, oh, well, there's this whole other thing going on with pitch and harmony. And, you know, and so when I got to college, I, I didn't actually, I mean, I knew what the notes were, but I, my reading was really bad i mean the first couple of years 
first year in particular, like in orchestra rehearsal was really challenging because I couldn't, you know, I was reading it a very elementary level pitch wise. Yeah. But, you know, because I had learned, because I had played as much music as I had as a kid off book, so to speak, I kind of knew how music went. And I used to like in middle school band, I used to kind of just make up the parts and they were cool. So the band director was like, ah, it's fine. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, know? really? Yeah. He kind of let me, I mean, he gave me this sort of, I mean, he, he sort of thrived in chaos in a sort of way that I really admire now, you know, where his whole thing was like, just get people excited and just make sure that they don't go totally crazy, but, you know, keep it, keep them reined in just enough so that no one gets hurt or anything. But aside from that, it was like a very, it was a lot of creative energy that he was harnessing, you know, um, in different ways for different students. And for me, it was letting me kind of make up my own parts, you know, in, in concert band, it was kind of ridiculous in a way that he would allow that. But, um, so you were presented with this kind of environment that had this lack of structure in it. Yeah. And it was good for you because then you could fill in the structure. It was just enough structure where I could fill in details, like the frame was there, but and, but I could make up the details. Do you apply that to, I mean, I'm kind of skip ahead and we'll go back, but are, are you applying that to Newspeak now or do you apply that to other? I think know? when I play, I, when I play drums, I mean, drum set I think of as, as an aural tradition. You know, it's not an instrument that lends itself to notation. I mean, it, you can notate it obviously, but the way that a drummer say in a rock band will play what they're actually playing including all the ghost notes and all the things that make the feel what it is yeah are really hard to i mean you can notate them all but then you end up with a really complex part you know which is sometimes what you want and sometimes you know when i write stuff for newspeak like my piece sweet like crude the drum set part is actually notated exactly and there are ghost notes in there and all these sorts of things that you can play exactly as it's written and it'll feel like it was written by someone who knows how to play drum set. But I almost think that it's not, for me, at least in the kind of music that I do, I feel like a composer can get a better result by giving a drummer a sort of map, a chart that says something like this. This is the feel I'm going for. These are the kinds of things that I want. These moments are really important, almost like you would in a big band chart, like you have hits, you have you know rhythms that you need to hit with everybody. But then if it's just kind of an open thing, you know, let the let the drummer kind of play off the page a little bit. With Newspeak, I find that's worked really well. Um, with the other instruments? Uh, or just with the drums? Well, for to a degree, for everybody. I mean, you know, the thing about a band like Newspeak is that since we are a band, the pieces that we play, we play a lot. They evolve, you know, and we always will check in with the composer, like, are you cool with us doing this? We kind of made this tweak or this tweak. But we've, you know, we've kind of made them our own, which is really great and really satisfying as a player. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe I know, at least for Newspeak, that that's sort of part of the deal. And so looking at the drum set notation as sort of representative of that, giving the right amount and the right kind of details, but not too, too much. When do you say to yourself, I'm going to take that mentality just to put enough rules to rein people in and have it not have it so nobody gets hurt, like you said. Right, right, right. Or when are you going to do something that is precisely notated, kind of stodgy? Should I say stodgy? You, you, well, you no, know I mean, I, mean? I don't, like I don't think that precision is stodgy. I mean, I think precision is sometimes exactly what you need. I think it's just a matter of knowing when when to allow one or the other or when to insist upon one or the other. So when do, you, when do you allow precision? 
I think it depends on the the me the the piece and the moment. I mean, I think it's hard to. T- there's no rule about it. I think you just need to feel it out. And I think it's good to always remain open to suggestions from performers and to revisions and tweaks. Um, you know, playing with Newspeak, which originally I didn't do. Originally, I was just running the group, and we had another drummer. And the minute I started playing with the band my whole world kind of blew wide open in terms of understanding music and understanding the dynamics between composers and performers and understanding how to navigate that world in a way that made sense for me and I thought benefited my own work and also the work of other composers we were playing. And so it's made me actually a much more open composer than I think I was originally. You know, if you look at the pieces that I wrote before I was playing with Newspeak, they're really just to use your word, you said stodgy, you know, and they're very strict and they're very, they kind of have more of the sort of um, notational, I'll say trappings for lack of a better word that you would see in sort of a, like a, like not Fernio, but like a modernist score with like feathered beams. And, you know, I was really into that kind of, that notational system. I like that you said trappings though. I agree. I think that it is, I, I think it is a trap. I think it's a fetish actually. At the time for me, it was, the the importance that I put in it, I think, suggests that you're right. I mean, I didn't need to notate the things I was writing that way. I wanted to, and I don't think it was a wrong decision. I think that I'm thinking of one piece in particular, uh, Sunday Morning Trepidation, which is, um, you know, it's a thorny, dissonant, kind of angular piece. And so the way it was notated made sense with that, you know. But looking at it now... You know, I mean, it had the whole thing. It had like the feathered beams and Hauptstimme markings and <laughs> big time signatures, and you know, it had all those things. And I love it. And I look at that score. I'm just like, man, that looks so good. And I still do those. Th- I mean, you know, the Dog Day score, which is the most recent piece that I've had performed. You know, the score has big time signatures, um, but because it's what the conductor wanted, not because I was making some sort of aesthetic judgment on how the piece needed to look it becomes more about what's helpful and what's useful and there are i think there are hauptstimme markings in that score i don't remember but there are but it's because they're serving the function that they were invented to yeah, serve. yeah it's literally it's literally like the like the lead voice that you yeah. want you yeah. know so it's important for people to know that instead of just adding another symbol on the page yeah, because that you it think looks is impressive. Awesome. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, so man, i do think like i was trap. caught up in that for a while and then encountering those scores as a performer it was interesting the, the moment that it really it really struck me was when i realized that the composer this particular composer we were working with um these things were very specific but they didn't really care they didn't care if the result was what it was supposed to be yeah it was very open i mean and i like that about this experience that the composer was like oh well you know this is also cool try this you know but then it was okay well then why if you're that open really which i think is a really good and positive thing is there a way of notating it that because you know you're preparing for your first for your first rehearsal you are working your butt off that's what i mean that to that like can... learn these riffs and then if you if it's just a gesture and it's an... infuriating to the yeah. performers it well took and, me, it took me a long time yeah. to not piss off performers by doing that yeah yeah and i think there are things i mean i i've gotten in the habit of saying if something is gestural i will write gestural with a bracket over it and i will give them sp- specific notes that they can play that I think will, like, if you play these notes, it will be exactly what I want. It will be great, and I will be totally happy with it. If there's something easier that captures the spirit of this or something that is less impossible or whatever, I'm totally cool with you doing that. And and I try to indicate that, you know, in scores now. But I think some 
people have the criticism of, oh, it's you're leaving it open because you don't know what the exact vision is. Do you know what I mean? Like they're sure. critical in that way, and I don't agree with that at all. But well, I think there's, I think that's those are there's a spectrum that that exists in. You know, I think it's fine to know what you don't know, and to say like, look, I am not a clarinetist. I'm writing a clarinet part. I know a lot about writing for the clarinet, and I've written a lot for clarinet. Just saying this as an example, but there are things that I don't know and things that I can still learn. And so, if there's a way that I can indicate to a performer. You are more of an expert at your instrument than I am. This is what I think is the best solution. And it's not like just throwing stuff up on the page and saying like whatever. You know, I think that's that's where it gets into trouble where you're just like, ah, I guess this, who cares? It's like, no, like this is what I want. This is in my my mind's ear the thing that I want you to play. But I'm acknowledging that it doesn't necessarily have to be this. Sometimes it does, in which case I wouldn't say that it's gestural. I would write it and there it is, you know. But if you know, and you know, and I think they're, you know, going back to the Hauptstimme thing, I mean, if there's something that's not as crucial that it's exactly one thing or another, and you can make it flexible, I think that that's good. And I think performers, at least my, in my experience, I think that it's been helpful. Maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe they hate it. But I think that it's been helpful. No, I mean, of course it's been helpful. And of course they like the, I'm sure, I'm sure they like the looseness. I think the problem is, is that, Okay, so you've been working with this and been a part of this band for a long time. Right. So it's also you have a dynamic between you and the other people that's right, right. you know more collegial than like a well-known string quartet. Like right, and I probably would you to necessarily premiere. do that for yeah. orchestra. If I were writing an orchestra piece, I probably wouldn't do that. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing. because because if you say, I mean, in a way, you have to like, especially if it's an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just like almost the worst situation a composer can be in is to be up against hundreds of people that probably most of them don't care about what's gonna happen i've had a lot of really great experiences with with orchestras um i mean i think the thing about at least from what i can tell about orchestras is and performers in general and this this is something that comes a lot out of presenting and concert organizing is as a as a performer i think all and i don't mean to generalize but like what you want most is to be able to do your job really well you want to be able to do this thing that you've practiced for, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of your life and go on stage and do that thing as well as you can. That thing is so narrow. It's really narrow. For an orchestra. Well, yeah, for anybody, for anybody, you know. I well, mean, not, like, not for anybody, for the Arditi String Quartet. I mean, just throwing random mm. stuff up, like, or, you know, um, uh, Music Fabrique. Oh, man, I only know European ones, you know. Mm. But uh, other new music ensembles, Wet Ink, mm. like, that's not narrow at all. They can do a wide range of things that they practice for thousands of hours. And sure, hours and sure, hours. sure. But, but it's for still, an orchestra, it's still it's very, very yeah. narrow. Yeah. But I mean, it's still, it's still this thing that they've invested in. Whether the the specific, you know, how it's realized is is narrow in one way or another. I think the deal we make with performers as composers is that we're creating this thing that's very important to us, and we need them to help us realize it. And part of that is really scary, especially as a young composer, that you have this thing that is the most important thing in the world to you, and then you give it over to this other group, you know, this other group of people, and maybe they just do not care, or maybe, you know, I feel like in a, their composers have experiences of experiencing hostility, or, you know, I mean, there are these unpleasant things that can happen. But I think the deal is, like, we're giving the, this piece over, help us out, help us realize this sonic creation, 
And in exchange, we will do everything that we can to make the parts legible, to have good page turns, to not make you do stupid things that aren't really necessary, and to make you to to create a scenario where you can sound awesome and yeah. you can do. People will be like, "Man, that player is great." Yeah, you know. And even if that means, even if the sound is like a violin scraping or an extended technique that is not, you know, quote unquote beautiful or. Um, you know, a vocal line that's not bel canto, you know, it's still, I think defining beauty is, it's a whole other discussion, but, but putting the performer in a situation where they can be awesome, I think is really great. Yeah. It's just a matter of what, yeah, like you said, what their definition of awesome is. And the thing is, but once you have a goal, you also have to convince them of that goal and you can do things that lubricate the way, like, you know, clean parts, page turns, you know, having things that aren't necessarily difficult, mm-hmm. but sometimes things are necessarily difficult sure. for some composers. Sure. And yeah, at that yeah. point, it has to, th- at that point, you have to like be literally just a personality or a person talking to the other person, yeah. right? talking to the player, saying that it, it has to be 17 in the space of right. 20. Right. Or if not, then you should write gestural. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, that, and that's, and I think there are also, you know, Performers and composers kind of find each other, you know. I mean, if you're a performer who who loves, like, your thing is really, really hard music, like, there are composers who will love to write for you, and you will hopefully love to play their work, and there's a partnership there. And I think, you know, that's what's kind of great about where we are musically now, culturally, you know, that all these things are now okay, and everyone, I don't want to say everyone loves everyone, because that's kind of a big generalization, but I feel like, you know, there's not the hostility that I think we hear about from our teachers of a past era. But people have things that they like doing or like doing less. And so you form partnerships and you form collaborations. And I think that's all really great. Have you ever had a moment where it's been, you've heard something and it's, and it's been more than just, uh, oh, maybe I can incorporate this into what I'm doing now. Uh, have you ever had a moment where you listen to something and you're like, I need to be doing something completely different from what I'm doing now? Kind of. I mean, I don't think I listen to anything and think and identify, oh, here's the thing I'm going to take. I think I just listen and I like things and they get absorbed. And it's not conscious in a certain way. It's just listening and keeping open as a listener. What's been creeping in lately to my work is more presence of more lo-fi electronics and sound. I've been thinking a lot more in the last couple of years about sound in a way that I hadn't before. So things like, you know, the ending of Dog Days is really in that in that world and kind of looking at noise, yeah. noise music and looking to groups like Wolf Eyes and Prurient and just thinking about that, you know, as a soundscape and at, kind of adding that as a part of a palette, I guess. And that that was something where I said, I like this, I like these sounds. Do they make sense with what I'm doing already? They were always sort of there, but um, the the lo-fi electronics aspect is sort of newer. That might be an example, but nothing in the way of like a like a complete 180 has ever like happened or anything like that. I mean, there was yeah, no, there was. I mean, in um, there was a period, maybe two or three year long period, where I, where this sort of shift happened. Where you know, I mentioned this piece, Sunday Morning Trepanation, before and kind of earlier. What I, you know, for me, a more modernist approach to things, I think other people might might not see it that way, but that's how it it felt to me at the time. And part of my experience with that was that it meant that I was keeping things out. So there were musical 
ideas that I grew up really loving. And the example I always give is this piece, Sweet Like Crude, that I wrote for Newspeak, which is like a big old power ballad. I mean, it's just power ballad. You know, it's sort of based on the power ballad. It has all these references to like 70s prog music in it. It's, I, re- I remember hearing a performance of that at the Brooklyn... Is that the Lyceum? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's man, it. yeah, yeah on Mata yeah. forever ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and Soldier Songs were both pieces that I wrote. And when I started them, I guess Soldier Songs was written in like 2005. So between 2005 and 2007, I just said, I'm not going to deny myself any musical joy. <laughs> you know, if there's something that I love and I think, sh- I think makes sense to do compositionally, I'm just going to do it. And two years before, I would have said, well, no, 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 that's not, we don't do that. That's not acceptable to do for whatever reason. I don't know where I got that idea that things were not okay. And having, and when I did that, that was a big moment for me. Cause then, it, then, you know, that being the, I'm not going to deny myself any. Yeah. Joy. And seeing what came of it being, you know, having sweet, like crude and soldier songs be the result of that decision and being really excited by them in a way that. You know, I had loved the pieces I had written before that, but they there was something I felt differently about them. There was something about those pieces that got me really excited to keep exploring that that world and that sort of way of thinking. And so that's kind of the path I've been on. Ever what was since. that? Pre- what was that pressure that kept you from doing that in the first place, though? I you think must it, have known a little bit what's keeping you from experiencing joy. I don't think it came from anybody. I mean, I don't. It wasn't like what you hear about from our teachers generation where my teachers were saying, well, you, you can never use octaves. Yeah. You know? I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to like name any, any person or institution, but no, I mean, it, it just, comes from somewhere. Yeah. An expectation it, of yourself. It, uh, but that's, it came from, it came, so it didn't come from any people or institutions. I believe it came from me not knowing anything about this field I had decided to enter and trying to find out what it was all about. And so going back and reading, just reading essays that were published in the late 90s were probably from the 70s or, you know, I mean, at this library at least, you know, it wasn't, um, or even just reading like Perspectives of New Music and some of the articles that would be written in in there at that time, which were more current. um, But I just somehow I developed this idea about what it meant to be a composer and what new music was. I mean, it's that whole like, the the question of what is new music and how is it defined and I somehow concluded all these things about it, most of which I I think are wrong now. You know I don't know of any specific examples, but well, not being able to indulge in something that is associated mostly with pop music or can sound like pop music, yeah. like something like Sweet Light Crude, which I heard. So right, yeah. Right. Well, and also the question of how you do it, because that's the thing that, that I've always found really interesting. I feel like a piece like Sweet Light Crude approached something that has been done unsuccessfully a lot. And I feel like I grew up hearing a lot of examples where it wasn't done as successfully, like sort of, you know, the dreaded crossover term or these things where I was like, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really sound like, it doesn't have the, the sort of power of rock music but it has a drum set in it, but it's a drum set played in a, in an acoustic setting. So it doesn't sound like a drum set would in a, on a rock record, which is how we identify with the, the sound of a drum set, you know? So there are all these weird little things. 
And so in a way, forming Newspeak was also a way of answering or beginning to answer or grapple at least with those questions. Yeah, so I think I had just, I had created or come to all these incorrect conclusions or conclusions that were actually incorrect for me and then I kind of had to undo it. I like that, it. yeah. I think conclusions that were incorrect for you because there, yeah. there are people who read that and go, oh, yeah, this yeah. is perfect for totally, me. Totally, totally. That's great because then they have they were in the right environment, they were reading the right things and everything aligned perfectly with yeah. their sensitivities yeah. as a person and then they never had to go, oh, wait, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I yeah. think the idea that everyone has to find, it was funny, I was, I said this to a, a composer friend of mine in Europe recently, and he sort of laughed at me. But the the idea that you know we need to find the kind of composer who we actually you know who we are, find who we are as composers. He did, he thought that was sort of ridiculous. I think. But well, I didn't think that was ridiculous. I don't know. He was just he just said, "Oh, that's so American to think that." How I don't think that's American. I've been living in Europe for four and a half. What, the, the Europeans don't. I don't have know. To figure out who they I are personally. I'm to... just basing this on his reaction. I don't know, but I, I think for me it was really that I, yeah, I think everyone needs to find that, and and you just need to. And I tell this to to my students now that you just need to ab- just absorb everything, even if you disagree with it, just take it in and sort of sort it out later. And I think what happened is I took it all in, and then this point we're talking about is when I kind of sorted it all out. But in the meantime, I was, you know, had different attitudes about it. And also embrace the moment of this is not what I want to do. I mean, that can mm-hmm. come along with, oh, then I guess I don't belong in the field that I chose. But mm-hmm. that, it's not, maybe you just need to find your own niche within that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think if you ever feel that, you just need to change the field. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, don't change if anything you else. Fe- yeah, if you feel like your work doesn't fit in the field, then you just need to do your work and change the field. Speech heard it be. 
When did the political stuff start? I've always been really interested in that stuff. I don't know exactly when it really started. Well, actually, that's not true. I think it came from, I don't remember what year it was. I was an undergrad, and I I listened to the Kronos Quartet's Howl USA CD, which has uh, some Harry Parch and has Lee Hyla's Howl, the Allen Ginsberg setting. Yeah. Um, Michael Doherty's Sing Sing Jade Hoover the Scott Johnson piece, the IF Stone piece, which was had a big impact on me. I mean, that record kind of did a lot. For, I mean, it, that's the piece that, that's the record that made me want to go to Michigan and work with Michael Doherty. That's the piece that got me interested in um, music and politics as, a, as an idea, as something to think about. And so I arrived at Michigan really interested in that and having no idea how to even think about it. And I remember the first time, you know, someone mentioned Adorno, and I was like, who? What do you, I don't no, know who you're really? talking about. Yeah. I was, so I was like, okay. At Michigan. This is at Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you're music and politics. So, you know, you must you'd be reading Adorno and stuff. And I was like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but know? his, you know, his idea is to have a much more subversive kind of approach to then what you do, which is, I don't mean, I don't mean topical in a bad mm. way, but you, well, you are, you, you take a specific moment in time and just, you know, work with that to make a point rather than just kind of, actually having the structure of the music kind of right. be subversive to any type of political right, like, right. Yeah, structure I think that's that, happening. I mean, you know, I think his ideas about it are very, I think for me it's very helpful to understand them in his place and time. I think the, the principles I really respond to, even though they seem to disagree with what I do now, I do think that there is a degree of subversiveness. I think that whole idea is very subjective, really, you know. I think what people consider subversive is a very individual thing. And so that's where that gets kind of tricky. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But like you said before, there's also a spectrum. I think it would be very easy to miss the point of the the political implications Mm -hmm. of a a Ligeti piece or a Webern Mm -hmm. piece or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, 
it would it's easy it's very easy for that to go over someone's head and just to experience the music mm-hmm. as absolute music right you know and in a certain sense i think a lot of the composers wanted that and i think it's an it's another thing for to listen to sweet light crude i mean those lyrics in the first place mm-hmm. it's a lot harder not to yeah like, understand the point of that and i think that's why i landed you know i mean because this is actually this is all my dissertation is about that whole situation you know and the spectrum of interpretations of music and politics and um and for me i think i've landed where i did because that's just what makes the most sense to me acknowledging all of these other very valid interpretations of the relationship of music and politics you know the the idea of like the aesthetic ideology which is i think um i think it's michael denning that's his term for it which you know makes great sense and i and i do think about that and i think actually that's pretty present in dog days although maybe in ways people might not necessarily recognize as that i mean for me just thinking about it i am making decisions that are informed by all this stuff you know you you mean musical decisions like note decisions like relationships between notes yeah this could get a little bit nerdy and boring but (laughs) like yeah but could you explain could you explain them a little bit i mean you know i don't know so much music it relationships between notes i think it's more bigger picture thing i mean again i think this this the noise thing is kind of part of this and destabilizing i mean the whole story right just being about this family during a wartime and the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of being human i mean i think my ultimate goal is to write an opera that is compelling and that works and is you know, I hesitate to say enjoyable, given what it's about, but, you know, that is an enjoyable night at the theater. But, you know, I mean, I don't know that there are any specific specific things I can say other than that, you know, I'm having gone through this whole process of really studying all of the different attitudes about music and politics. I'm very aware of them as I'm writing now. They definitely, those are things, you know, talking about moments before with, with works. These are also these ideas I, I carry with me and you know, while I'm writing, I'm thinking about, like, well, what does Bob Ostertag, what would he think about this? And, you know, what would Adorno say about this? And what would, you know, um, I don't know that I'm necessarily trying to execute an ideology along those lines, you know? I mean, I have sort of have my way of interpreting all that, which I think comes out in the work that I do. I don't know that I could totally define it, <laughs> because it has, it has become very internalized in a lot of ways, which it, for me, I think is good. I think that's the right place for it in a creative process. A lot of the, just getting back to like Dog Days and uh, Sweet Light Crude and Soldier Songs, which I guess I can only make assumptions about because I never heard Soldier Songs. These all deal with subjects that are incredibly complicated and nuanced. Right. Like about human behavior, the relationships between us and society, like how politics breaks down some in a way. Do you feel that music is a good medium to express those nuances or do you sometimes have to take like a very very complicated idea and just say okay it's being expressed in music i have to figure out my what my opinion is on it and then if like there's another side to the argument that can like counteracts it that makes the whole thing make sense i can't do it because it's an it's an opera Mm -hmm. and it's and it's done in an hour and a half and it's done with a libretto that goes slow because it's an opera like it has to go slow so i mean like how do you do that do you have to do you feel like you have to simplify an idea in order to apply it to a medium i think for me opera and music theater in in a way is really about emotional lives 
so when I'm writing, you know, when I was writing Dog Days, I was thinking about well, who are these characters and what are they experiencing and, you know, what is the text and what is the subtext and what is their place in the arc of the story? Where are we going? Where have we been that the audience doesn't know, but we need to know as the writers? And I think that you have, I, I don't think it's a great idea, and this is just my opinion, to try to, I think Philip Glass, I think, said about his opera, The Voyage, that it, it's an opera, it's not a history book. Uh, and at the time, that really, I was really mad, that got me really mad, because on one hand, it suggested that you can write an opera about Columbus, which you, you of course, can, and you can, you know, overlook the negative aspects of Columbus and just write it about this great discovery. You know? Or you could easily write an opera about how bad he right. was. You could yeah. do the other, yeah, yeah, you know. And so in a way, it's just like anything where you can you can have your angle and you can, which I'm actually, I'm not so interested, and this goes back to my the music and politics thing, I'm not really interested in telling people what I think. Let me rephrase that. I'm not so interested in giving an answer to anybody. Like to say, here is the question and here is my answer. That's the answer. To a certain degree, that's impossible because I'm writing it and I have opinions about stuff, right? So yes, of course. you're going to get, to some degree, what I think about it. But with Soldier Songs, I started out by interviewing veterans. So I interviewed um, seven vets who are all either high school friends or family members and just talked with each of them for about two hours on tape about their experiences, about why they went into the military, where they drafted, did they, did they enlist, what was their experience there, what was their experience with reintegration. High school friends or family members? Yeah. Are you from Pennsylvania? No, I'm from New Jersey. Really? Mm -hmm. I'm from New Jersey too, but I don't know any. Well, where are you from in New Jersey? Warren County. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It all makes sense now. Huh. But yeah, I mean, I had a lot of friends in, from high school who went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and it was interesting, when we've done the show... The first time we put the show up, I was the only person who actually knew someone who had been in Iraq or knew anyone who was in the military. As a person in taking part in the show, in the participating show, yeah. in the so show. Like yeah. The director didn't know anybody. You know, it was very interesting. It was just interesting to notice that. But, you know, so I interviewed all these people and then I listened to, I was sort of gathering data. And then I said, okay, so I have, because part of the, the piece, the reason for writing that piece was that I had very, as a high school student and like in college, I had very strong opinions about war and pacifism. And I was, I had this sort of militant, uh, uh, ironically militant view of all these sorts of things. And then one by one, I started to have people, I had people who I loved entering into this situation or realizing that I had people who had been in this situation, uncles and my grandparents, my grandfathers and and I said, okay, so there is this cognitive di dissonance here between this attitude, this, you know, sort of, you know, precious high school attitude that I had about it that was just so absolute and so clear. And then the reality that it's all very messy and very complicated and very difficult. Yeah. And so the piece was written from my perspective to figure that out and to sort all that stuff out just for myself. Is the piece you figuring it out? The piece itself? Yeah. The piece is kind of presenting the data in a way okay, and dramatizing a lot of the data. So, you know, talking about based on the story of my uncle going through the sort of reintegration process and coming home from Iraq, you know, key lines that he said, I would then I wrote the libretto for this this piece, which I don't do anymore. But, um, 
you know, I would then write a song that was based on this really poignant thing that he said. And so it's exploring the emotional life of these factual moments, you know. And then because it's an opera or because it's, you know, whatever that piece, if it's an opera or a monodrama or whatever, but because it's a large scale piece, an hour long, you can have the flexibility to put these things in an order that creates some kind of a narrative. It's a pretty loose narrative. The, the character is an abstract character. It's not really a character. It's just the soldier who sort of represents all of these different stories. And then it just kind of brings you through it and leaves you out the, the back of the piece to think about everything. You know, it sort of goes back to what we were saying with um, the radio show, you know. I mean, I want people to leave a piece like this or a piece like Dog Days not necessarily being able to articulate whether they agree or disagree. And I'm not trying to convince people that what I think is the right thing. I'm trying to present something that will leave them thinking about it so that they can then come to their own conclusions about it. But ideally something that they maybe hadn't thought about before. You know, so presenting an issue and saying, this is an important issue to, to talk about. Maybe they walked in and they were you as a high school student. You know, yeah, and then you were simply presenting them with data in the yeah. form of music, and then they—that's something else for them to consider. Yeah, and then yeah. they leave thinking, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> you know, maybe either, well, I still think exactly what I thought, or oh, maybe I should rethink that, or maybe it's more complicated than I thought, or you know, any of these I think are great. You know, so did that happen? Did people walk away with different uh, opinions of it? I think so. The thing that I'm really proud of with that piece, and I've been told this by a number of veterans, is that it's it's one of the few things that, and I, having never been in combat, I don't know, but that there that presents a certain kind of truth about their experience that they, from what they've said, they don't see often, and that was really meaningful to them, from what they said to me, and meaningful to me as well. That you know, here is a here is a you know, something that's really honest and difficult but it's an accurate depiction of this situation. And Dog Days, in a way, I think, has a similar, I don't want to say goal, but sort of uh, impetus behind it, you know? Yeah. Like, let's get into these questions about what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be part of civilization? How do we treat each other? Why do, you know, when we're good to each other, why are we good to each other? It's, in a way, it can cross into a kind of cynical place, but I think it's important to examine that. It's getting closer. What is the war? I can feel it. Oh, you don't feel anything. I can feel it. There's something in the You're crazy as hell! I can feel it! They should lock you in the psych ward! I think everybody's moved away Haven't seen old Lady Martingale Peer from behind her curtains in Sunday mornings Mr. Davis, get his mail in waves. 
everybody's dead, Lisa. Government comes in the middle of the night. Yeah, with trucks. Clears them out when we're asleep. They break into people's houses. They can smell the bodies. Yeah, the ripe ones. Ripe. We'd hear the trunks, we'd see the broken doors. You're so young, so naive. Oh, shut up, Pat. Hey, Dad's outside. There's nothing out there. And he's not even chasing the friends away for a change.
to talk to people and dogs. want to get back to uh, soldier songs mm-hmm. or we can even use we, we can even use dog days but even when you're taking objective data mm-hmm. the mere act of setting it to music mm-hmm. which means that it's very kind of emotionally loaded mm-hmm. medium mm-hmm. and not only that but it's absolute music is in- incredibly ambiguous mm-hmm. so basically it's easy to Im- superimpose that onto anything and then like give it meaning because there's no two clashing meanings so once you once you do that it's mm -hmm. like a real minefield and how do you how do you navigate that at at a certain point when you're writing something are you saying i know this is like this objective thing that this guy says but i'm taking my own sensitivities of music reading into it and now i run the risk of doing anything from putting a slight slant on it that people are going to go to all the way to uh, this is straight up propaganda right right. yeah and that's the spectrum when you start dealing with issues like this. And it's definitely something that I was aware of writing it. And part of writing Soldier Songs in particular was me really struggling with those questions. On the one hand, you're, you know, I, I mean, I had hours and hours and hours of audio footage. And it's an hour-long piece, right? And the interviews are part of it. You know, there are these collages of interviews. But they're curated, right? I mean, I created these collages based on 
what I thought was most meaningful and what had the biggest impact on me. So to a certain extent, there's a there's this sort of weird trust issue. Like I need to go into it and just say, I am not doing this from the perspective of propaganda or manipulation. And, you know, a composer says that and an audience has to almost say, okay, I believe that you're telling me the truth, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. There's a sort of weird deal that you kind of have to make with an audience when you're doing this. It's like, I am not going to take advantage of your goodwill in entering this dialogue with me. I'm presenting this in the most honest way I can. It's the same trust people have to have when they are going to a news source, almost. Yeah, in yeah. a way, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we're all human, so I have opinions about things. And it's also a show. It has to work as a, as a show. You know, it has to work as, a, as a, a, a work in time and a work that deals with the emotional elements. You know, it's not just about presenting facts. If I wanted to just do that, I would write a book, you know, or make lists of facts and tweet them or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it is an emotional journey, and it explores this emotional journey. And it had questions... It started from questions that I had and answered a lot of them in a way that I felt were answered well, you know, for myself. But I have to be open to the fact that others may react differently. And, uh, but for the most part, you know, we've, had, we've done a lot of work with veteran groups who have been very positive about it, which was the thing, excuse me, that was the thing that I was actually most concerned about. Yeah. Because I, you also run into this, you know, I'm curating you know, where is the line, since I'm not a veteran and I have not been in combat or in the military, how, where, is, where is the point of exploitation? You know, where is it me using this, these people's experiences? To be a know, composer. Or whatever, yeah, yeah, for whatever purpose. And those, those are hard questions. And, I, and the piece, I mean, the piece took me two years to write. And a lot of it was having very serious discussions with friends about these issues and with my teachers at the time and just saying like figuring out where that line is and how to do that ethically in a way that it's not some like cheesy war movie, you know, it's about something other than that. And I, so when the, when the veteran community, you know, especially for the New Haven performance, we did a lot of outreach with the veteran community and had um, panels and guests uh, come into the shows and, and also just the people who have come up to me after performances, I feel like we did it right, you know, based on the, their reactions. I feel like it doesn't exploit these people who are people I love, you know, I mean, these are my family members, so I don't know why I would exploit them, you know. Um, but it, but it's very interesting. And like everything, I mean, as soon as you enter into this music and politics discussion on any level, it's impossible to be anywhere in that realm too long without it getting super complex. You know, it's like you take two steps in any direction and there are like 4,000 questions that immediately pop up. And there's always going to be someone who didn't think you did it well. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, that, that goes for, for anything. It's just a, yeah, anything. Yeah. But since it's something as concrete as politics, then I almost feel like almost everybody can have skin in the game and have a like, and like chime in because it's, it's got lyrics. It's got words. Yeah, you don't need to know the history of music since the the early twentieth century right. to like have an opinion on whether or not something was yeah. too much or too little in a certain direction. It's something very concrete. And for yeah. something like soldier songs, sweet light crude or dog days, it's very topical almost. Well, dog I mean, days is really topical, but like yeah. Well, that, I mean, yeah. and that's interesting to look at those three pieces because sweet light crude it walks the closest to danger in this way. 
partially because I was working, I was playing around with satire, you know, and how thinking a lot about Jonathan Swift and a modest proposal, and you know, can we write a love song to oil? That's that was the sort of challenge I gave to myself. Can you write a love song to oil? But in terms of you know message, it's got the clearest message of the three of those pieces. I think the other two, Dog Days and Soldier Songs, the message is much less clear. I think there are a lot of messages you could take from them, which I think is really important. And looking at just those two pieces as a trajectory, consciously, Dog Days is less explicitly political. I don't think of Soldier Songs, strangely, as a political piece. I think of it as being about kind of the same thing in a way, you know, the individual and the mass or the individual in either a social organization or a kind of institutional organization. And what are the results of that? You know, what happens when a person becomes a soldier? What happens then, you know, when a, an individual joins into a military complex? And there are a lot of things and a lot of interesting answers that come out of that question. And Dog Day is kind of about the same thing. You know, what, what happens when what is the deal in a weird way with the individual and society and what happens when someone decides to live outside of that? What are the complications of that? And the absence of more explicit political stuff in dog days, I think is indicative of where I'm interested in moving. You know, I'm much more interested now, I think in, in sort of existential questions than in political nitty gritty political stuff. So you think the future for you is more of a, character studies put into hypothetical situations or something like that and that's done to highlight or illuminate something complex in the way that we work i think that's one thing yeah that's one thing i'm really interested i mean one of the pieces i'm working on now and i'm just sort of getting started on is uh it's called arto in the black lodge and it's about uh i'm not sure even how to talk about it quite yet but it's let's say an imagined meeting in the bardo between David Lynch, Antony Artaud, and William Burroughs. David Lynch? Yeah. Yeah. Lynch, Burroughs, and Artaud. Because finding that even though they didn't, at least when they wrote their really important or created their really important works, didn't know each other's works, you know, like when Burroughs wrote Naked Lunch, he didn't know Artaud's work. Yeah. And yet they ended up in similar kind of places. So what's that about? You know, so like I said, it's brand, it's very young. We don't have a libretto yet. We're working on that, um, writing with Ann Waldman, and it's gonna, it's totally different kind of thing. You know, very. I think it's gonna be very abstract, and it's uh, who knows. You know, um, but that's really exciting and totally different in some ways. But not. I, li- so, I like that idea you know, because then you're you're dealing with these things in a way that's not. I mean, it's risky as like a a piece of art to make. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of avoiding the downfalls of what I was saying before, right, you know, right. like all of a sudden, like what, what the hell statement, what the hell, like clear political statement could you be using to express your opinions with something that abstract and yeah. weird at the yeah. same time as people talking? Yeah. Who's going to play David Lynch? I don't know. We're so, so weird. weird. I know. Maybe we can get him to do it. <laughs> that would be extra weird. David Lynch playing himself. You should give him a call. You have his number? No, I don't have his number, but yeah. And he's been in a bunch of weird, like he'll do weird I, stuff. I have a fr- you could at least get him to go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. we're definitely going to invite him. I have a friend who is friends with one of his friends. So we're working on that angle. Um, so we're, we're closing in on the, the, you know, two degrees of David Lynch. 
but yeah, so that's something I'm really, you know, that's a piece. And it's what I like about, and I've always kind of been in, had this as an inspiration for writing is I want to, I want to start a project and have no idea, like know nothing about the topic. And then while writing the piece, just learn all this information about <laughs> my master's thesis at Michigan is called Screamer. And it's all, it's this sort of Ivesian collage of circus music. <laughs> so I know all this random stuff about circus music now <laughs> because I just started this piece and said, oh, let's learn what does this thing do when you, you know, why the B flat chord at the end of, you know, what? So I did all this like research on circus music. And I kind of feel like in a weird way, this Arto Lynch Burroughs thing is the same thing, you know? Hey, an excuse to go back and read Naked Lunch again. Cool, you know, you know, to catch up on the the Lynch films I haven't seen. To, you know, read the theater in its double. To, you know what I mean? There's just such so much stuff to learn in order to do this piece. I've sort of set it up as a. It's sort of like I went to Princeton because I had to write a dissertation, and I knew that if I didn't have to, and I wanted to get to this music and politics thing, I wanted to get in, you know, get into it. So I went there because I, they were going to make me do it to get out, you know? And I feel like with the, this piece, it's kind of the same. Like, I have this piece. We know when it's, you know, theoretically going to premiere. I have to know this stuff in order to write it. So I have to do this. I have to read these books and, ha- you know. So I don't know. Maybe it's all just so I can learn more. <laughs> I write music so I can learn more. Are, are you always like a long arc project kind of guy? Are, like, do you feel like from more now on more. it's just like big chunks? Like... I think that yeah. These, I guess like including the including the project you just mentioned that would make the last three things you did hour to an hour and a half long oratorios operas you know yeah and there's I mean the Brooklyn Phil oratorio is thirty minutes I have a piece um, haunt of last nightfall which is about the massacre at Almazote El Salvador in the eighties that's thirty two minutes also so yeah I I think I've landed in a kind of I really like large pieces I think for the reasons I said before that yeah. you can you have more time you to and to go back to what you mentioned about propaganda you know if I wrote a five minute piece about any of these things we've talked about I would hate you it would it would just be awful yeah. it would be it would be so hard to say that it's not propaganda. Because you lose all subtlety. You just, there's no room. There's no time to get into yeah. the subtlety. But if you have 30 minutes and the same issue, you can address it in a responsible way and show the nuance and get into, just from the, the perspective of what interests me, I think that's really important. Do you think 30 minutes is even enough? Do you think an hour and a half is even enough? I mean, I think it depends. I think some pieces, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you sort of have to feel it out. I was thinking, I was thinking about this like right after the opera. Mm-hmm. I was because I thought it was good because it was it had nuances in it. But for me personally, the type of amazing, incredible nuances that I've been that I really like get a lot out of is like I can't even get that from nuance from a movie anymore. Mm-hmm. It has to be. It has to be a great television series, like Mad Men. Oh, something that goes on for yeah. like years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it, yeah, so, yeah. Like Sopranos. Totally. Um, well, that whole Breaking Bad, like that medium of like great amazing. series. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, oh, this is so incredibly detailed. Totally, yeah. And then I'll like, and then I'll go to something that's 30 minutes or an hour and a half, and I'll be like, that was good. Of course, it was you know nuanced and had something complicated to say. But it was still like for me, it, like it still wasn't tapped long enough, yeah. and like it needs another forty hour long yeah, right, <laughs> installments right, totally. in order for you to really, really like nail it, it down. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's interesting with this the this piece haunt of last nightfall. I mean the my goal 
out of that piece, this is an event, this massacre was an event that I did, I knew nothing about until I read about it in this Bob Ostertag book. And apparently it was written about in the New York Times and then this reporter's career was sort of ruined by the Reagan administration and there are all these like cover-ups and it's all this weird historical stuff. So my goal for that was to be like, hey, this happened. That was sort of the extent. And I guess you could do that in a five-minute song, but like that didn't feel right to me. So this happened, let's talk about it, was my goal as a socially conscious person <laughs> for that piece. And I think... I think it does that. I think, you know, it's something that a lot of people didn't know about and they experienced the piece. It's not a report with factual information. I mean, it, there are facts as part of the titles and things like that. So it is still a piece of music and it still is, you know, as I said before, concerned with emotional life of things. But I felt like it was important for me as a person, you know, as a person on the planet to to bear witness to that. And that's you know, the conclusion in my dissertation is all about the politics of bearing witness and that at a certain point, just saying that something happened is a really important step. Then you can get beyond that step into why did it happen? How do we not have it happen again? All those sorts of questions. But if no one's saying that it happened, then you can't get to any of those other things. Yeah, the question is how many people are going to take the second step after you say that? Yeah. You know? Sure. Well, it's, you know can lead a horse to water i guess yeah well i think it's a good place to end it sure can lead a horse to water <laughs> lead a horse to water yeah um yeah cool well thanks for for this has been really fun all right well thank you cool thank you